Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome to this podcast for College Success Formula members. I'm Tom Bodorf, co-founder of College Success Formula. Well, the title of tonight's podcast is Making Your Final Decision, Which College to Attend. What a great topic and how time-sensitive this time of year, huh? Well, my special guest tonight is Eric Goodhart. Eric is our Senior Admissions Counselor, and he's a charter member of our advisory team here at College Success Formula. Welcome, Eric. Hi, Tom. Thanks for joining us. Eric's joining us from the Boston area, and we're, of course, broadcasting from the lovely Dana Point Harbor here in Southern California. Well, Eric, let's start off with this. When is it that students need to make this big decision on which college to go to? Well, for all those students that have applied to colleges using the regular admissions uh, calendar or early action, May 1st is the day they have to make their decision on where to enroll and send the deposit. So it has to be postmarked or you know, indicated on the computer that uh, <clears throat> May 1st is the date of decision where the deposit has to be sent. And is that virtually every college pretty much in, in the country, Eric, May 1? Yes, it is. It, uh, <clears throat> colleges used to uh, try to get kids to commit sooner uh, in the past, but uh, it's kind of a an agreement, uh, if not set in stone, a gentleman's agreement that all colleges, you know, need to allow students to decide where they're going to finally attend college by May 1st. So that's will be called National Deposit Day, kind of a phrase that we, we, we've been using over the years. It's a good name for it. <laughs> yeah. And the only exception, of course, would be those students that back in you know, the previous calendar year, you know, applied early decision. Uh, for instance, the students this year, high school graduate of 2017, some of them may have applied to schools using the early decision program, which is often either November 1st or November 15th. And so when they applied, if they heard back affirmatively from the colleges that they, the one college they applied to early decision, they would have to make that decision <clears throat> pretty soon after the financial aid award was was received. So their decisions have already been made, the deposits have already been sent, and any other school that they may have applied to, need the application needed to be withdrawn. You know, Eric, when, when they do commit to that May 1st, families ask all the time, the, the first check that's required, you know, on that May 1st deadline, that one's relatively small, right, as far as the non-refundable deposit? Yeah, it averages about $300, $350, which okay. is credited. You know, it's, it goes towards that first uh, tuition payment. I um, see. And families will have till August 1st. Most schools will have, once the student commits to a school, there'll be uh, information sent to the student. Uh, the parents, by the way, should be aware of that in, that correspondence because sometimes uh -huh. it doesn't seem to get to the parents. But there'll be information on how to pay for college in that letter oh, okay. uh, in a 10-month pay, pay plan. Um, usually it's a 10-month academic year, and the decision on how to set that pay plan up uh, needs to be made by August 1st prior to the freshman year. And I think that the 10-month pay plans that I've seen through the years, typically they're interest-free, right? They take the cost of college for that coming year, divide it yeah. by 10, and I don't think they typically add any kind of interest on, as I recall. No, no. It's a very, <clears throat> just that one that's set up fee each year. It's either 60 to $75, depending uh -huh. upon the kind of payment plan it is. But it's a 
just a one payment, but it's, there's no interest on it. So and it's and is that fairly common? I'm sorry, is that common with public and private schools both? This ten month payment plan? Yes, and there are exceptions. There are some uh, that are nine months, some that are twelve months, uh -huh. um, but none of them have interest uh, accruing. Uh, within them good but the payment what what families need to remember even though they have till august 1st to make that uh set up that payment plan once that's done and they tell the college how much on a monthly basis will be can be automatically withdrawn from at the first of the month um that that payment usually will go back to june so that first payment won't be just one payment. Uh, it'll be ah. June. It'll start in June before the student has even graduated from high school. Oh, I see. So June, July, August will be uh, like three months of payment. Mm -hmm. After that, uh, in subsequent seven months, uh, will be that whatever that amount of money is two thousand, three thousand dollars will be taken out of the designated checking account. I see. And uh, <clears throat> so the, the first year. Payment will uh, largely be uh, completed, uh, let's say, at the end of April. Okay. Students to school. Okay, Larry. Back to the uh, the college selection. Uh, what would you say are the two most common errors, the biggest errors that students tend to make when they are picking their final college selection? What, what would be the two biggest ones? Well, it. <clears throat> It starts back the, the first the biggest mistakes that students make uh, that I've seen is that they don't really thoughtfully think about why they want to go to college in the first place. Um, ah. They're they're largely doing it. Uh, it's a kind of a thought. Well, it's expected. Uh, this is what the next step is. Uh, and so if it is the next step, they're not taking the time uh, to really think about what they want to get out of college. Uh huh. Uh, if they're athletes, they're looking at that more than anything else. Uh, and that's sometimes we have to uh, get students, and it's not easy to take you know, help teenagers <laughs> consider these, uh, you know, who they are. Uh, right. It's, it's a matter of introspection. And when they go to college fairs, you know, they'll have all kinds of options and people behind the tables, have, you know, talking about what their college has and what you can do at their college, uh, but there's <clears throat> these people that are representing colleges at the college fairs, which is quite often the regional admissions counselors, will say financial aid is available. So you know uh, we have <clears throat> you know so there isn't that much emphasis placed on the cost of college. Uh -huh. uh, so there are two things that they're not really these kids are not really considering uh, carefully enough in the beginning are you know why they want to go to college what their possible major might be what their natural strengths are so when we start with students we look at that that's the first step sure the second one is you know the parents also need to get involved in helping the student understand the financial ramifications uh, of that decision so those two things predominantly seem uh -huh. to be the the things that their kids are not looking at closely enough and seriously enough. So when it comes time and they get their letters of acceptances and what we see now um, in the various social um, networking and the correspondence back and forth we see on uh, Facebook and other, other places, we see that families now are getting 
their kids. The kids are getting into some of the schools, but they say, well, how are we going to pay for it? <laughs> right. So that's, that's a big issue. The question I hear so often, uh, way too late in the game, is when families, moms and dads will say, how do they expect us to pay for this? You know, well, <laughs> they yeah. applied to the college. <laughs> yeah. Oh. So, so we're saying that the, the very foundation in many cases is, is pretty weak in terms of the initial college list. If, if, if a student has done, and a family has done a lot of research and built a really solid list of colleges to apply to in the first place. And we say, well, typically eight to 10, I believe is your, your number. Yeah. Yeah. If, if they have a strong foundation, a great list, then when the awards come through, they can really kind of pick and choose. They've done their homework. They know what uh, major ideal, or at least the general direction the student's going to take in college and what they want to do ideally when they get out of school, at least to some degree. But if we have a weak list and they just kind of pick schools at random or just a bunch of public schools that are close to home and don't really have a plan, then if they get into five or ten colleges, well, if they're the wrong colleges in the first place, <laughs> it's hard to make a good decision at that point. We've got to have a good, solid foundation from day one, don't we, as far as building that list? Right. And it's typical, you know, that we've seen over the years is that when a student's is left to his or her own uh, devices to develop a college list. It's largely uh, <clears throat> with the, the more well-known schools, right. the more so-called prestigious schools that are on the top of the list. And uh, it's fine to have, uh, uh, you know, to, to strive for maybe the, the more competitive schools if it's realistic. Sure. But the, we like to bring students back to, you know, a list, start with a list, uh, maybe 15 colleges usually if we start with sophomores or juniors uh -huh. uh, 15 colleges based on a variety of criteria but we want uh, those safety schools so-called and i don't like to use the word but i'm using <laughs> right. it now but the realistic schools that are uh <clears throat> that really will provide help the student meet their goals won't be uh, uh <clears throat> but no school really advertises itself as a safety school we want we want the student to build their list from the bottom up. So once they see uh, the, the value of schools that are uh, reasonably easier to get into than the Ivies and Stanfords and Caltechs of the world, um, then we can start building on that. Then we look at the more competitive schools and we look at what does a student need to do to be in a good position to be considered as a serious candidate right. at the more competitive schools. But when you work from the top down, you know it's just the it's the wrong way. It should be the bottom up. I, I love your your statement to fall in love with your safety school. That's a great great philosophy, great starting point for these kids as they build those those lists. Yeah, and it's not just academically, but also financially. And right. There's some, um, and that's <clears throat> it's also a big factor. You know the reasons that we see students applying to you know certain colleges out here in California, certainly, uh, one of the big things tends to be location. I've had students come in here to our office, and when I ask them what their dream school is, uh, guys especially will say, especially if they're even somewhat academic, they'll often say, oh, I want to go to UC San Diego. And I always respond and I say, you know, that is my favorite UC school. They're you know strong in engineering, and I'm an engineer by you know, my background and so forth. Uh -huh. What is it that you want to do at UC San Diego? <laughs> and Eric, I'm not kidding. They will turn that around to me and ask me a question. 
what do they have there? <laughs> so, so as soon as they as soon as they say that, I know that the one reason they want to go to UC San Diego is because it's in La Jolla, it's on the beach, they want to go surfing every morning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you probably have some similar things. But you've been up in Boston, there's probably yeah, students that uh, want to kind of stay close to the coast, right? To close to the beach. That's why, you know, <laughs> It's now and nowadays it's so easy, and that's why we start with well, who who are you? What are your natural strengths? And uh, you know what? How do those strengths relate to certain academic concentrations? And how do those academic concentrations or uh -huh. uh, you know relate to certain careers? Right. Um, and then once we iron those things out, we discuss that. Then we look at the colleges and at those particular departments. Uh, with those particular majors, and we look at the faculty, you know, and that goes back to the AAA method, right? You know, admissions, academics, and advising. And in for, in terms of making your final decision, you know, if this <clears throat> if a student hasn't visited the school, hopefully they'll be able to visit school. You know, we want them to visit those campuses before uh -huh. they make that final decision on May first. Uh, but yeah, you know, and preferably. Uh, during the week, uh, the spring vacation, uh, you know, here in the Northeast, uh, the California schools, uh, there's, there's a break in April. Um, and I tell parents early on in the process that and when your student is a senior and has received acceptance letters, don't, please don't plan on going to Disney World or, you know, <laughs> to the Caribbean uh, during that spring break. And right. this, is a, this is a very important time to visit colleges to help make that final decision to, to set foot on that campus and talk to students and go to the uh, career services office which is open during right. the week you know that's a uh, window of opportunity so many students and families miss isn't it mm-hmm yeah and it's very narrow and we've got to remember th th these these kids even the most mature ones they still are teenagers and they really do need guidance uh, in this whole process because it really is complex and it's a it's a major decision my goodness yeah, it is. It's uh, you know, it's like buying a home. Uh, the cost of college now, you know, right. two hundred twenty thousand dollars over, you know, <clears throat> without financial aid. Right. You know, this year actually, I, I, I'm remembering um, the most expensive college that I've seen actually seen an award letter come from. So far this year was Columbia. We saw um, a student's aid award which reflected a total cost of attendance eric of seventy six thousand dollars this year for columbia so we're looking that's that's in excess of three hundred thousand dollar sticker price isn't that amazing mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> how how high can it go oh my goodness well eric uh i want to talk about uh the wait list uh you know what does a student do if he or she is placed on this thing called a wait list? Mm -hmm. Well, that's like the, you know, the no man's land. It's like, <laughs> oh my gosh, you know, many uh, colleges, the more competitive colleges, this is another, you know, there's a whole strategy on how to avoid getting on the wait list in, in the first place. But if you are, if a student does get that letter from the college and says, congratulations, or we, we really, well, they wouldn't start with congratulations. It would start with, this year, 2017, graduating class has the most competitive high school class in, in history. And uh -huh. had so many uh, qualified candidates, and you are, you know, very qualified. You've done, you know, uh, you know, your work in high school has been you know, great, but uh, we just don't have room. And uh -huh. uh, we're, we're 
going to put you on the wait list. And so on the wait list, what that means is that if you decide to stay on the wait list, because they, you know, you have to let the college know if this is a college that you definitely uh, wanted to get into. Uh-huh. So your number one school, you notify that in the, in the manner in which they describe uh, some colleges will say, you know, no need to um, do anything other than let us know that you want to stay on the wait list. There's no priority given to the wait list. Uh, it's just uh, when we know if, how many students are going to send in their deposits by May 1st. We have to sort it all out and uh, find out if there's any space left. And you, we won't be able to let you know until you know later in uh, in May. Uh, at which time you'll you know before that you'll have to send a deposit off to another school, which you'll forfeit if you do decide to go to that school that you're accepted to uh, that that you were on the wait list. Uh-huh. Um, now, the only time, if you've had, if a student has had uh, communication, a good, particularly with the private schools, not with the public schools, you don't really have really solid communication with anybody in admissions office, but you may have, uh, with a private school, with a regional admissions counselor, uh, that an email can be sent to that individual thanking them for being considered or disappointed to receive uh, the notice that you're put on the wait list, but you, you know, you definitely have a still strong interest, a very strong interest in attending the school if you were able to. Um, <clears throat> is there anything that, you know, I can do, you know, that would enhance my consideration? You know, and usually the answer would be if there was some, something, some achievement done after the application was sent in. Uh, it could be a standardized test score. It could be a, a project that you know, wasn't completed at the time the application was done. But usually that regional admissions counselor can let that individual student know uh, what the possibilities are, uh, what can be done uh-huh. in order to enhance that position uh, in terms of acceptance. Years ago, you know, the, the most competitive colleges have very small wait lists, like Harvard, you know. Uh, you're lucky to get off a wait list if you are put on a wait list. Right. Students can go on the common data set uh, and scroll down. You know, it's a 39-page uh, profile of the school, and down towards maybe page 11 or 12, you a student can see how many students the previous year that school put on the wait list, how many students decided to stay on the wait list, and how many students were taken off the wait list and ah, eventually matriculated. I see. So you'll see at the, at the Harvards of the world, you know, maybe zero. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I had one student who was put on the wait list at Harvard, um, and she actually, you know, had this relationship with, with the regional admissions counselor uh, in the years leading up to the, you know, final decision. So actually she went in, uh, and this is not the parents, and this whole process of uh, getting off the wait list and having a positive outcome, the parents need to stay out of it. Um, it's all up to the student, and we help the student. If we see it's a reasonable, um, if there's something that can be done, uh, something that we we forgot or can be enhanced, we can counsel the student, but we don't want the college to know that parents are uh, there uh, behind it, pushing the student in. Uh, oh, I see. Student needs to take the initiative. And this particular student 
did take the initiative and uh, asked for an opportunity to sit down and, and talk to admissions. Oh, and wow. Just, uh, um, you know, talk about her, her case and her reason, her specific reason to going to Harvard. And she was actually uh, uh, accepted. So um, she kind of talked her way in. <laughs> she talked her way in, yeah. Uh, she didn't have a particular hook other than her maturity and her way of handling the whole thing uh, just uh, resonated. Uh, wow. Now that's, you know, it's, it's an anecdotal. Uh, <laughs> it, you know, it is um, an exception, but it, it uh, does happen. Right. Now, now, she was on the wait list. Well, what about students that are actually denied? Have you seen many cases where they've talked their way in no. after denial? No, no. no it is that's very not, rare. Not, not in 25 years have I've seen that. Uh-huh. So, so denials, and this is another thing where you, you even actually have, <clears throat> you know, Parents get, uh, you know, all up in arms when the student isn't, ex isn't accepted and receives a denial. And that, that is a sure for a surefire way of uh, really uh, diminishing the student's chances uh, right. down the road if the student wants to transfer into that school that he was in denied in the first place to. Right. Um, so. Now, Eric, do, do most public and private Colleges have the wait list, or is it on a limited basis? Yeah, they pretty much have it all. And this is a <clears throat> where students, and this is another thing that families and students don't really consider uh, closely enough. With the uh, with the number of students that are applying to colleges, they're sometimes looking at their safety school as as just that. You know, well, that's a given. I'm going to get into there. But uh, even safety schools uh, have been known to reject students that they normally would accept. But huh. if so that's why even if a safety school um, is <clears throat> on the list, you have to the student needs to make some kind of interest, uh, demonstrate some kind of interest to that school, uh, particularly if it's a local, if it's a school within the state uh, the student resides. Huh. Um, I see. So, because they'll look at the transcript, and you know, sometimes in the application, a college will ask one of the supplemental questions: "What other colleges are you applying to?" And uh, that's a tricky question, and it's sometimes taken as, uh, "Well, who's the, they want to know who their competition is?" So, if they see a student applying to a, um, a Baylor University in Texas, for instance, and also um, Rice or RPI. Uh, uh, the more competitive schools, Rensselaer Polytech, that, and that student's SAT scores and transcripts are are strong. And if the admissions person, uh, people at uh, Baylor, see that, oh, this student uh, hasn't visited Baylor. There's been no contact with the regional admissions counselor. It seems you know they would you know they could very possibly say, well, this student is really. Yeah, you know, probably not going to come even if we accept them because right. their transcript looks strong enough to be a very, very strong candidate at these other schools that he says that he's applying to. Sure. Um, so <clears throat> when that question comes up, um, students don't have to list all the schools they're applying to. You know, what other schools you're applying to? You, you would list the schools that are comparable uh -huh. to the school that's asking the question, uh, particularly if you know, you're an Ivy League caliber kind of student and you're looking at, um, and, and you might be a, a strong candidate, maybe not necessarily for Ivy League, but uh -huh. for the more 
the most competitive schools that are not in the Ivy League um, that maybe offer merit scholarship. And uh, so there's a there's a strategy on how to how to answer those questions. And uh, right. So that, that that particular question that does really need to be answered very strategically. Students often just answer the question without any yeah, any thought. Right. What, what other schools are you applying to? Well, here's the other ten. You're saying that yeah. that needs to very strategically be be evaluated and not to necessarily list, especially the ones that would be considered, you know, the the safety type school. Yeah. Ah, that, that's so that's that, a real nugget there. Yeah. That student at Baylor then, you know, would be, uh, you know, either not accepted at all or uh, put on the wait list. Right. Now here in the Boston area, we've got a number of most competitive colleges, you know, and uh, we've got now Tufts University wasn't always in that category of huh. most competitive. Really? Uh, but Tufts, you know, this goes back uh, about 15, 16 years. Tufts started to realize that you know, so many students were applying to Tufts as kind of a fallback. Huh. Um, so they started literally to reject students that were highly qualified, you know, <clears throat> Because you know they said, well, we don't want to be considered a uh, ah. fallback school, so we're ah. going to teach teach the uh, high school admissions office a lesson. <laughs> and believe it or not, that one year that they started to reject students that would you know normally would, would have gotten in. Yeah. Um, once they started to be rejected, then the, it woke up high school admissions counselors across the country, say, hey, we got to take stuff seriously. That's interesting. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So that's just an example of what goes on in other geographical sections of the country yeah. uh, with schools that, uh, you know, <clears throat> they want to attract the top students, but we want they want the top students who really want to be there, not just as a, you know, oh, yeah, well, I couldn't get into Harvard or MIT, so I'm going to go to Tufts. No, but no, it's not going to, it's not that easy. Interesting. Well, Eric, <laughs> let's close with uh... – uh, a question regarding the financial element here. Um, let's say a student gets into, you know, their choice school or one of their top schools, and if a financial aid package doesn't make that school affordable, uh, what's the best way for them to appeal that award? <clears throat> well, you, often the um, school will have a process for appeal, you know, outlined in on their website. Okay, uh, and. <clears throat> If there are special circumstances, you know, you know that you and I, we both, we look at the special circumstance. We try to anticipate uh, what the financial aid award will be if that student is accepted way ahead of time. Um, and the student uh, and parents also have an opportunity ahead of time to now look at the net price calculator on in the high school's web on the college website to to kind of get a. a an early bird look at what the possible financial aid eligibility might be, but that is mixed. Uh, that's mixed bag of results. Right. But when that final letter of ex uh, financial aid letter comes in, which is usually after a week after the admissions acceptance letter, uh, if that bottom line is not, you know, doesn't really relate to what the net price calculator indicated, not even close. That could, that's a, <clears throat> a reason to appeal, uh -huh. um, and the appeal process needs to be handled um, in, in the manner that the college wants it outlined. Usually, there is a request for a letter to explain um, the reason for the appeal, special circumstances, uh, loss of job, uh, ex, you know, one-time uh, 
particular expense and health costs. There are reasons each is to appeal because a family just says, oh, well, I just don't have the money. <laughs> not a good well, reason. <laughs> unfortunately, will yeah. not uh, you know, pass muster. And when I counsel parents on the, uh, on the possibilities of appeal, uh, we look at we go back to the academic profile of the student, you know, because we know we've talked about it quite a bit. If a family has identical income, identical assets, they and applying the student is applying, two students are applying to the same school, the financial aid award may not be the same, and quite often isn't, and it all depends on how bad uh, the, the, they want the student. It's called financial aid leveraging. Uh, those students that you know have a stronger academic or some aspect of their application may be stronger, uh, they'll get more money. Um, not all students are treated equally uh, because colleges want the stronger students uh, that can enhance their uh, their own image in in the, in the marketplace. So. <clears throat> We look at, you know, when we do a dry run for a family, uh, we anticipate uh, what the possible financial aid award be. And if there's special circumstances, we do pre-appeals. And uh, those uh -huh. pre-appeals are done a week after the FAFSA and the profile are filed. Ah. If the student is in the top 25% of the applicant pool, we don't do pre-appeals for students that may be in the lower 25% that may be on the cusp because that might create or just an outright rejection sure we don't want to put all our cards on the table but the students that are strong candidates uh, academically and otherwise for uh, consideration but the family has special circumstances <clears throat> I help the family compose a letter um, to the financial aid office kind of giving them a um, an early bird look on what the special circumstances are. So in other words, not wait until the financial aid award actually oh, is received okay. and appeal for the scraps on the table because sure. most appeals don't really result in any major increase that could be two to $4,000. Boston University actually has a certain amount of money set aside and it's labeled, you know, appeal, appeal grant. Huh. Now this is, you know. Really? So they anticipate, uh, because Boston University isn't the greatest for financial aid in the first place, but right. they, so they have this little cushion <laughs> financial aid, uh, grant money there, which is labeled, it's not a scholarship, it's just you know, grant, uh, additional <clears throat> appeal grant money, but it right. it's not, it doesn't amount to more than $4,000. Oh, I see. Uh, which could make the difference for some families. Sure, sure. Uh, yeah, you multiply that times four, four or five years, you know, that yeah. starts at, now you're up to, you yeah. know, 15 or $20,000. Yeah. So a squeaky wheel, you know, gets, uh, you know, the grease or whatever, you know. <laughs> so in some cases, oh. a preemptive strike, we might call it, is in order very strategically for some students at certain schools. Yeah, exactly. And that's where that's, you know, and that when I've gone to the college board workshops for financial aid directors and I talk to the financial aid people, Every one of them without say to me, you know, if we knew about special circumstances, you know, other than, because in the profile, there's information, there's a place to put in special circumstances. Right. That's not always, you know, paid attention to as closely as a letter, um, just a simple letter um, for those particular specific students explaining the special circumstances because the financial right. aid director will say to me, 
it's at that time, it's in uh, February, March, when all that data is in, they have still they haven't allocated all the funds. And at, you right. know, at that point, there could be communication with the admissions office, with a particular student, uh, you know, because we share that letter with the regional admissions counselor. Uh-huh. Again, it's that relationship we've developed or the student has developed with the regional admissions counselor. So if the RAC really likes that student and wants that student in that in that school, uh, and that letter is copied to, you know, the main letter is sent to the director of financial aid, or uh, and that's that person then meets with the financial aid uh, team and say, here we have this special circumstance for this student. Admissions says that they they want this student. This is a uh, this is a student that has all the uh, that all the criteria from an admission standpoint. So that's when the money is still there, and that's when the uh, aid can you know really it does uh, in almost ninety percent of the cases that I've worked with, the financial aid package is a lot better as a result of that uh, activity than it would be if we waited till the uh, oh I the see. Aid- and you mentioned that the, the profile form does indeed have a, a little box, right, where you can yeah. tell your story. The FAFSA form doesn't have such a box to tell your story, does it? No, no, it's, uh, it's this is what it is. Yeah. So the FAFSA, the expected family contribution, as it's uh, as it as it's uh, given in the student aid report, that is basically tells the college what the student is eligible for for federal financial aid loans and uh, grants you know that's right. the only reason for the fafsa form colleges that only accept the fafsa form usually that's a red flag if it's, if it's a private college that only uses the fafsa that means they don't have any money to really fill the, the need 100 percent so the, right. the federal methodology efc um <clears throat> is just uh, the raw number and there's largely a gap unmet need in a lot of those schools that only take the FAFSA. You know, Eric, you mentioned the, the net price calculator and you're getting a, an initial estimate you know, from the, the school and then comparing that to the actual award. There's a, a parameter that, that I've pointed out to a lot of families that, that is quite misunderstood. And you've seen this for many years. They call it the, the average percent of need met. And the, the word in that term that parents overlook all the time is average. <laughs> they'll they'll yeah. see that a school on average meets, let's say, 90% of, of, the, mm. of the need. And they just assume they're going to get 90% of their need. If they need $30,000, they expect 90% of that $30,000. But I always point out that's an average. So that means that some students may theoretically get 100%. And others get eighty. <laughs> and yeah. d- does that percent need met typically reflect how desirable the student is to the admissions office? Yeah, that well, that's <clears throat> definitely it goes back to financial aid leveraging. The leveraging, much, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, and also another figure that you know families will see is you know so many hundreds of thousand dollars in uh, scholarship money was given. Yeah, well. <laughs> Who gets that? And so when the student really researches his or her colleges initially and looks at the criteria for the merit scholarships, uh-huh. you know, you get an idea who gets that. Um, so going back to developing a relationship with the uh, with the individual regional admissions counselor at a private school, 
a good opening question would be, you know, a uh, question specific to merit scholarships by mentioning, um, not asking whether they have merit scholarships, but asking that with the presidential scholarship this last year, is there any anticipated change in criteria? Uh -huh. What percentage of students uh, are considered for that? or receive those presidential scholarships. Sure, sure. You know, and if we really back up to some real fundamentals, the very definition, of course, of financial aid has been tweaked a bit through the years. When I, when I was in college, way back in the 70s, financial aid pretty much implied free money, you know, grants, you know, need-based grants or merit-based scholarships, but but money that you didn't have to to pay back. What the colleges and the government have I believe, very cleverly <laughs> done through the years, is they've really redefined really that basic term, haven't they, Eric? You know, a, lot, a lot of families still, when they hear financial aid, when they go to the college tours then the admission office and the financial aid office says, you know, we have financial aid you know, for every student that comes here. Well, yeah. the, I, I instruct families all the time, raise your hand when they make that statement and say, now what kind of financial aid are you talking about? Because they, they now include not only, of course, grants and scholarships, but they consider loans to be financial aid, not always the greatest loans. And they even consider these work-study programs to be financial aid because they're subsidized by the government in many cases. But it's a job. Mm -hmm. How can they call a job <laughs> that a student is working, what, 8, 10, maybe 12 hours a week? They, can, they put that into the financial aid category. So th there's a lot of real misconceptions that, that parents have, even in that basic term, of financial aid. Yeah, th there is. And <clears throat> we don't, when we do the dry run, we don't really count work study into it or when we, when we compare financial aid awards uh -huh. because a lot of, uh, there'll be some schools that will put in to beef up and to make, give the appearance that a family is getting a good financial aid letter or award they'll unrealistically increase the amount of uh, work study that the student is eligible for. Um, because most students, particularly in the freshman year, don't really work that many hours. And I think uh, it's advisable for most students to get adjusted to the academic load. And uh, But if they're ready to do some part-time work, they should you know, start that, that process, uh, find out how to start that process and to, you know, get interviews for those jobs before classes even start. Sure. The, uh, the the best jobs are taken. But we look at when we count the uh, evaluate the award letters. We just look at the grants and scholarships, and we leave the loans out of it uh, initially to see what the uh, <clears throat> the actual cash flow, including loans, is going to what the debt is going to be. Sure, sure. Well, Eric, if, if a senior or a transferring student uh, wants to learn more about this important topic this time of year. Uh, where can they go for, for some further information? Well, I've got a couple of essays uh, in, that I put on the, <clears throat> my blog, uh, smartcollegeplanning.org. And they type in the search engine, the countdown to National Deposit Day. Um, and you know, you get a lot more details, a little bit more ex information on, on how to navigate that process and how to make that final decision, particularly when there are other students in the, you know, the student has siblings. Um, and they can always call me, too, if they have specific uh, questions about the process in preparing a college list in the first place. Okay. What's your number there, Eric? 978-820-1295. 
Well, Eric, I want to thank you for joining us tonight and for this great information on making your final decision, which college to attend. And if anyone has any questions about making the final decision, you've got Eric's website. I encourage you to visit it. It's www.smartcollegeplanning.org. And I guarantee you'll find a lot of exceptional college planning information there. So thank you, College Success Formula members, for joining us, whether you're listening to us live tonight or the recording at a later date. So until next time, take care. College planning success to you. If you have any uh, questions, shoot us an email here at support at collegesuccessformula.com. May God bless. Good night. Good night, Tom. Thank you.